Welcome to Dockside, the educational show that helps you save the waters you love by sharing clean and safe boating information and much more. I'm your guest host, Sarah Kennedy. In today's episode, we will meet two retired California State Park lifeguard chiefs, Mike Martino and Mike Broussard. We will recount their most dangerous and memorable boat rescues, learn about the impacts the accidents had on the environment, and what boat operators can do to help prevent future accidents. Now it's time to pull onto the slip and tie off to join us dockside. All right, welcome. So today, as I said before, we will be speaking with not one, but two retired lifeguard chiefs from California State Parks. Our first guest with 33 years of lifeguard experience is Mike Martino. He lives in Imperial Beach, California, and is talking to us today from his vacation home in Mexico. Say hello, Mike Martino. Hello, Sarah. Really glad to be here. And uh, it's super fun to be here from my beautiful house in Mexico. Our other guest with 43 years of lifeguard experience, Mike Broussard, affectionately nicknamed Bruiser, is talking to us today from San Clemente, California. Say hello, Mike Broussard. Hello, everyone. Well, since you both share the same first name, to make things a little easier on our listeners, I'll be referring to both of you by your last names. For those of you listening that don't know, a career as a California State Park lifeguard is a unique and diverse role. Full-time lifeguards with California State Parks are also peace officers. Broussard, can you explain this a little more for our audience? Yeah, you know, just a little history. In the early 70s, it was decided that uh, park rangers and lifeguards were going to become peace officers because as the parks were overrun with people, the police didn't want to come in there and and, uh, help out with the enforcement issues. So we became peace officers. And you know, we we split the duties pretty effectively until the late 80s. And then at that point, it became more and more of a a police officer kind of a job. Um, You know, where I worked, we did the lifeguard thing as you know, as much as we could at Huntington Beach, uh, all the rangers left. And so the lifeguards were in in charge of all the law enforcement. So when you work there, uh, you were a law enforcement officer first and a lifeguard second. The old days, once in a while, we would be in our reds and we'd, we'd strap on a gun right over our reds and, and do the law enforcement thing. <laughs> in addition to being a diverse role, as a California State Park lifeguard, you can work in many diverse locations throughout the state of California. Martino, can you elaborate on that for us? My career took me up and down the state. I started in the traditional role of the tower lifeguard what we in state parks call lifeguard seasonal one. And my first assignment was at San Aleo State Beach, Carlsbad State Beach, and down at Torrey Pines. And then as my career developed, I actually had an opportunity to transfer up to the Sonoma Coast, which is cold ocean water up in Sonoma County. I was part of a group of lifeguards that were the first lifeguards who came and actually lifeguarded that coast. And then from there, I had an opportunity to become a permanent 
employee. I actually went into our academy as a as a ranger, and then my assignment after graduation took me back down to San Diego, the Cal Carlsbad and San Aleo area. Then I had an opportunity to go down to Silver Strand State Beach as a light, as a ranger, excuse me, and then. I had an opportunity to go to the Central Valley. I went back into the lifeguard ranks and became the boat operator and lifeguard supervisor at a place called San Luis Reservoir. And then from there, went back down to San Diego at Silver Strand State Beach and was a lifeguard supervisor there. And then towards the end of my career, I had an opportunity to kind of promote up the ranks and eventually finished out of a Sacramento assignment as the lifeguard aquatic specialist. Wow, that's a lot of different locations throughout the state of California that you worked in. Uh, so between the both of you, you roughly have 73 years worth of lifeguard experience that we'll learn from today. Did you two ever work together during that time? I don't think so. I mean, we knew each other, uh, but I, we never worked together that, that I can recall. And we didn't work together. Mike was already a established lifeguard peace officer when I was a seasonal. So I'm in a way kind of a generation behind him. I was the first generation of permanent employees. So the badged employees that came in with a much more law enforcement minded. Uh, that's how they, we were taught. And Mike's generation was they were the ones we teased that they had the bowling bags, meaning all their gun stuff was in the bowling bags and they had it in the trunk of their cars. And when enforcement came up, they, they pulled it out. But Mike and I actually, our careers paths were such that when I was a seasonal, uh, we did a newsletter and uh, Mike made some commentary on the newsletter. Uh, it, it's actually a, a great little story, but he suggested that, my coworkers and I that were writing the newsletter should have been fired and we probably should have been, <laughs> but we weren't. And then when we got Mike's letter about us getting fired, we kind of cut and pasted it and made it sound like he was uh, complimenting us on our newsletter. So we were, we were sort of like the mad magazine of newsletters for our little lifeguard stuff. So we had lots of interactions in various ways. And of course in lifeguarding, all of us know each other. So even if we're not working the same beach together, we're either at a training together or Mike's teaching a training. Uh, there's, there's always something that we're interacting with each other, whether it's kind of in a fun, silly way with newsletters or the much more serious way on the beaches. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me weigh in on that. Um, you know, I, and this is, this is a, a commentary on the different cultures in separate locations of lifeguard services. I saw the, the newsletter and and I just thought it was really disrespectful and blah blah blah. And so I, I kind of freaked out about it. And, uh, and but I totally misread the situation because the, the the people that were being pilloried in the newsletter were just like, oh yeah, this is just how we do it here. So I, I kind of overreacted. And to be fair to Mike, because I obviously I got to be the aquatic specialist, I was responsible for policy procedures, et cetera. I look back at the stuff that we did, and I am thankful that our management at the time let us be a little bit freer. And what Mike says is 100% true. <laughs> <laughs>
Before we get started, we have a few clean boating safety tips for our listeners. Did you know that your boat's raw sewage can cause harmful algal blooms, contaminate shellfish beds, and pollute waterways? Dispose of your boat's sewage properly using Pumpout Nav. Pumpout Nav is a free iOS and Android mobile app that helps you find the nearest sewage pumpout station, dump station, and floating restroom. Log your pumpouts, choose your favorite locations, and report non-functioning facilities all within the app. That's Pumpout Nav, now available for iOS and Android. Again, thank you two for joining us today. Let's get underway. Uh, Martino, let's start with you. What made you choose a career as a lifeguard? I was, I think, traditional for us Southern California lifeguards. My intent was I'd pay through for my college or at least contribute to my parents helping pay for my college costs. I went to University of California, San Diego. I lifeguarded in Southern California. I thought I was going to be a water polo coach, swim coach, and a teacher. And that's how I, I went with my career. I went to teaching school, et cetera. But I, upon graduation from college and then doing my teaching credential, I had an opportunity to transfer up to the Sonoma Coast, which was the most challenging physical lifeguard environment I had ever been in. And the permanent lifeguards that I was working with at the time were so admirable in their duties and their responsibilities. I thought, I think I might want to be one of these guys. And based on that experience of watching fellow co-workers that were peace officers, but see them balance their peace officer responsibilities and their aquatic responsibilities, it really opened up the potential of the job for me. And I followed my mentors and said, I want to be like them. Very cool. Now, Bruiser, what made you choose a career as a lifeguard? Uh, you know, I grew up in Long Beach, up in LA County. And uh, it was, if you were a swimmer up there, it was considered a rite of passage to be a lifeguard. And uh, so I tested in 1970 to become a lifeguard. And uh, uh, and I was assigned to San Clemente. I wanted to work Huntington, which is where all my friends work. But, you know, I got the assignment at San Clemente and I was bitterly disappointed. But as soon as I got down here, I'm like, I'm never going back to Huntington because you know this was a rural place then. Uh, so I was a seasonal for seven years. Um, during that time, I worked for the city of Long Beach for three summers. They allowed me to work in the off season at San Clemente. And then I worked in the summer at Long Beach Lifeguard Service. And uh, I became a peace officer in 1977. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, starting out, uh, that was why I did it. It was, it was you know, you, you were expected to become a lifeguard at some agency when, you know, when you were a swimmer in the era I grew up in in Long Beach. Now, Broussard, you are a rescue boat operator. Can you tell us a little more about your responsibilities and your experience doing that? Yeah, um, you know, being a, a lifeguard rescue boat operator on the coast, uh, it's it's a really specific kind of a skill because you're, you know, we, we would do boat tows, but that wasn't our main thing. We did, we did swimmer rescue, we back up swimmer rescues. Um, I operated at Huntington and uh, in San Clemente. And um, so you trained to, uh, you know, operate at the edge of the surf line. And, um, you know, the, the whole idea was, you know, you got a boat with these big propellers and you're operating around 
you know, in and around swimmers. And so, you know, the training that I went through was a year long. And, uh, and you know, it, it was all about the number one thing was the safety of the, the visitors and the safety of your deckhand. And just getting used to the fact that you're, you know, you're backing a, a 10,000 pound boat and, you know, right on the edge of the surf line. And, you know, and sometimes you get caught um, inside and you need to know how to handle that. So it's a, it's a really unique skill. Uh, the responsibilities were, um, you know, maintaining the budget for the, for the boat operation, uh, maintaining the, the mechanics on the boat, mechanicals on the boat, and just making sure you're all stocked up with, you know, all the gear. Uh, in that respect, our biggest focus was to make sure that the boat was available from April until mid-September. Mid it had to be available every day. It's not that we took it out every day, but, you know, we get a, we'd get a busy weekend in April, and the boat had to be ready to rock um, uh, during that time. And from Memorial Day till, till Labor Day, it was absolutely essential that the boat was out there. So if we had to stay late or come in early to fix stuff, we did that. And Martino, you were an inland boat operator. How does that differ from being an ocean-based rescue boat operator? Well, obviously we don't have the waves in the sense of the big ocean swells, though the lakes that I worked on at San Luis Reservoir, we had the upper reservoir, which was over seven miles long and four miles wide. And the winds would come in over the, from the coast, from Santa Cruz. And I would get three to four foot chop, but the waves didn't have a period of a long length. For example, on the ocean, Mike might have 15 seconds or so between wave to wave while mine were one second. So you would get these slapping waves that were coming off of the dam or the various structures inland that we were operating around. So there was that challenge, but I never was really worried where in Bruiser's case, if he's not extremely careful, he could be swamping his boat. Yes, I could be, but it wasn't quite at the edge of his. I think for me, I had a number of technical things I had to be able to do, but it wasn't as much as on the edge as where Mike could have been. Yes, mine was difficult, but the environments are just, I could have rocks, I could have shallow water, I could have those slapping waves. And as we'll talk about in some of the rescues we may discuss, I had some other challenges in terms of just my environment. Uh, the boat that I drove was a 25 foot dual outboard Sentry. Uh, made by Boston Whaler, or mine was actually the Frontier model. But Mike's boat would be like on steroids compared to mine. It, he just was driving something with so much power. Not that I didn't have power, but I could operate with a vessel that wasn't like driving the Hulk around. Wow, it's interesting how the two different operations could be similar but different in so many different ways. Now let's hear about your most memorable or dangerous boat rescues. Martino, let's start with you. Can you tell us about one of your most memorable or dangerous boat rescues? Sure, I'm gonna give you a little broad brush picture. 
we were making between 150 and 200 boat rescues a year on the lakes. And they could be something so simple as somebody ran out of gas, the wind has kicked up and now they're getting pushed into the dam and we'd pull up and we'd just tow them and bring them to the, to the dock where they could take care of business. In other cases, and this one in particular I want to tell you about, I got called to the center of the O'Neill Forebay regarding an overturned vessel. And I, as the operator, my responsibility is to keep a sharp lookout for everything around me. And then I have a deckhand who's going to do my rescue responsibilities, whether that's throwing a tow line or possibly jumping in the water. Well, what happened is we're on our way there. We realized it was a boat with uh, nine people in it that had overturned in the water. And as we were coming, I started seeing little dots on the water and they were the heads of all the people who swam away from the vessel trying to swim three quarters of a mile more back to shore. So they didn't stay with their vessel. They left their vessel and tried to swim to shore. So on my way to the rescue, I had eight different people in the water from age two all the way to grandparents trying to save themselves. So I had to be on a sharp lookout to pick everybody up on the way to the overturned vessel with my deckhand helping me out. And then the last and ninth person was the only person who stayed with the boat. He was sitting on top of the overturned boat. So on the bottom of it, safe as can be. So that it was just a rescue where the unexpected happened. I thought I would just be approaching an overturned vessel in my mind. It seemed that everybody would be holding on to it. But the real surprise was the debris field of people was scattered because everybody swam away. Yeah, a lot of times rescuers don't have all the information before showing up to the rescue. So as a rescuer, um, what are you doing on your way to your call to ensure your safety and the safety of others? And Mike will attest to this. One of the things as boat operators, we are always trained and is driven into our head is the phrase slow is pro. And one of the things going into a really critical scene, you have to remember that it's their emergency, not your emergency. So if I would have come in there at a high rate of speed, just aiming right for the overturned vessel, I very well could have run somebody over. So one of the things that I needed to do was keep a sharp lookout as the operator, have my deckhand keeping a sharp lookout. And he was just pointing out people, you know, uh, off of the starboard bow, bow Mike, yeah, two points over, we go pick them up. And then we would keep scanning and looking for the people. And as we were bringing them on the vessel, asking who else is out there, how many more are in your group? So staying with that general idea of slow as pro and just methodically rescuing people as you approach what I'll call ground or boat zero to make sure we got everybody and just trying to keep your emotions that are natural of excitement and desire to save these people contained enough so that you can be slow and methodical in your rescue operations. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, but looking back, what could have been done differently by this boat operator to prevent this type of accident? Well, in this particular one, they had more people than they were supposed to have on the boat. So each, every boat operator knows that you have a little plaque in your boat that tells you what the safe number of occupants is. And I think their boat was six and they had nine. 
So they were already overloaded. What happened to make the boat tip is everybody sat on the same side of the boat. So it turned over. And then the obvious one from my story, because we were on a lake and they didn't have to worry about surf, every single one of those people should have just held onto the boat. Just stay with the boat, float with it. And there were a number of people who had called in the accident and the rescue. So we were on our way. It happened to be one of those where I wasn't on patrol that day. It was late in the shift. We got called into it. We had to launch the boat and then we went out and got everybody. But the two things that are, I'm going to go to three, one, make sure you have the proper amount of people on your vessel Two, if your vessel overturns, stay with your vessel. And number three, wear your life jacket. There were people who did have their jackets on, but they were swimming towards shore and some of their jackets were ill-fitting and they were in the process of drowning even with the jacket on. Thank you, Martino. Those are great tips. Now let's move to you, Broussard. Can you tell us about one of your most memorable or most dangerous boat rescues? Yeah, you know, unlike at the lake, like Mike said, uh, they, rescue, they, they did a couple hundred boat rescues a year. We would probably do 20 to 30 boat rescues a year. And we would practice for it, but it wasn't our main thing. Our main thing was swimmer rescue. But uh, a memorable incident that I responded to was on a really big surf day. It was like 10 feet. And uh, we had been patrolling off San Clemente. And it was kind of a quiet day. And so we were coming back at the end of the day. And we looked in and we saw the sailboat that had, uh, it was in by this reef about 300 yards off the, off the shore, off of uh, what we call Beach Road. And we thought, wow, that's, that's kind of weird. And, and so a, a set came and as it moved by and we saw it uh, break on this boat. And so we thought, wow. So we roared in there and, um, and, uh, what had happened is they they had an anchor, but the line wasn't long enough. And so what happened was they drifted in. They had lost power. They were motoring back to the Dana Point Harbor. They lost power, and um, I think they ran out of gas actually. And the line was so short that that it didn't it didn't catch until um, you know they were 300 yards off the beach on this reef. And so every time the set came, they were just getting pounded. And, uh, and so we, we, we went in there and we, we, and, you know, and I, and as the operator, I don't want to be caught inside in my boat on a 10 foot day. So we had to like play this little cat and mouse game. Uh, you know, we, we pull in and we, you know, we'd try to hook them up and then, oh, here comes a set. And then, so we'd run back outside and then run back in. So finally we caught a long lull and we decided what we were going to do is the deckhand was going to swim the line over to him to, to hook him up so we could tow him. And he was just going to cut the, the, their anchor line. And uh, so we finally got this long wall. He swam in, um, you know, got him hooked up, cut their anchor line. And, you know, fortuitously, you know, n- nothing, you know, there was nothing coming. So we got him out, outside far enough that, that I thought we were, you know, I thought we were home free. Well, it just so happened that, uh, you know, we wandered onto a, a part of the reef that was shallow and all of a sudden here comes a big set. And, uh, and so I'm like, and you know, you gotta make, you gotta make a decision here. It's like, 
you cut them loose and save your own boat or, or you know you go through it with them and and take the hammering and the danger of that is you got them on a line and uh, you know the forces generated uh it could separate the line and you know the, the line whips around it's a really dangerous situation so we were motoring out and and our boat and i told the deckhand stand by with with the line knife and uh so we we barely made it over the set wave that was going to break on the reef but they, they were a couple hundred feet behind us so they were not going to make it over and so um uh i must have been feeling frisky that day because i i told the deckhand not to not to cut the line and so they got hammered and thank god the line held and and uh we were able to make it out and uh you know ultimately get them back to the to the uh the harbor safely uh you know safety wise if i if i had to do that now i would probably have cut them loose because it was it was a big risk to our boat and our thing was always you know live to fight another day you know you don't lose the boat and uh but we pulled it off and uh they were not very happy with us when we <laughs> when we got back to the harbor but but we uh, you know we managed to do it um environmentally there was there was really nothing but the lesson is uh, out of this is uh, that if you're if you're a boater you got to make sure you have enough line uh you, you know i would say you should have at least 60 or, or 70 feet of, of anchor line to lay down because these guys i don't know what that you know we call it scope you know the, the the angle that the line goes to when it catches on the bottom these guys had nothing man they probably had 15 feet of, of line or 20 feet and so that's why they found themselves in that position when they lost power yeah it seems as a lifeguard or rescuer you were often making split second decisions that save someone's life and oftentimes the people getting rescued don't know how dangerous the situation was because they came out unscathed. Uh, Martino, how have dangerous rescues affected your life? It's one of those things that when you're a young rescuer, you really want to participate in those critical rescues. And I think a lot of that is because you're just learning your craft and you want to know that you can do them. You can do what is required to be done in any given rescue situation. So early in my career, those would be things that I embraced and look forward to. But I think anybody who has chosen this career and spends any time in it, and similar to what Bruiser was talking about, how close to the edge he had to play that particular rescue, you realize how much your skill is important, but luck plays a tremendous role in it. And just like a gambler who just keeps stepping up to the table and rolling dice, you're just wondering when those dice are going to come up and clear the table for you. So as I got further and further into my career, it wasn't that I wouldn't do those rescues, but you start to sort of develop a little feeling of dread. And because you know, if you've been doing it, how many times you were close, right on the edge. So when I got across what I call the retirement finish line, 
I started having uh, recurring dreams of old calls. And the best way I can explain it is it was like onion layers peeling off and I didn't want to put them back on. So late in my career, I realized how important it was to, I'll call it, clear out some of those mental injuries that all of us accumulate through a whole career. And that's how they affected me. I didn't necessarily know it at the time, or I might've even been, I don't want to say braggadocio, but just, you know, proud of the rescue work you had done and the events and sharing the stories with coworkers. But there really is a cost that accumulates. And I think it's really important for rescuers that might be listening to this podcast to understand how important it is to make sure you take care of that because the critical rescues we all make throughout our careers do accumulate and they do potentially have a negative effect that if they're, if it's left ignored can cause you some problems later on. And I'm just real, I, I'd pick this same career again. I, if somebody magically sprinkled dust on me and made me 25 years old and I could, I would do it in a heartbeat, even knowing some of the negatives. But those critical rescues do have a cumulative effect that has a negative side that I wasn't aware of till I got to the end of the game. Thank you for sharing, Martino. Uh, Broussard, what about you? How have the dangerous rescues affected your life or your career as a lifeguard? Um, well, like Mike, and that was very well said, Mike. Um, uh, you know, I went through a long period where I was really struggling with, um, you know, my ability to do the job and, and uh, you know, and, and also like Mike, I, um, you know, it's a rare, you know, I think about lifeguarding all the time. And I think about the rescues that, that I had and, and I dream at night about that stuff. Even I've been retired for almost eight years now. And, uh, I, you know, it's, it's just a part of who you are. Um, here's, here's an interesting uh, uh, deal. I operated the rescue boats until 2000. I did it for like 10 or 12 years. And then I promoted it. And, and, uh, and so one year, and I, and I would do it once in a while, you know, for a special event or something. But one year uh, when I was 60, um, the, uh, the lifeguard chief, and some others had retired. So they asked me to come back and operate one of the surf watch rescue boats for a summer. And I was like, whoo-hoo, yeah, this is gonna be great. And so, you know, so my first day out there, I went, I went down to San Clemente. It was a big day. It was like 10 foot plus. And uh and and the guy I was with was this, you know, hot shot deckhand. He wanted to. He wanted to back into the surf line and, and dive out into some of the waves. And so I'm like, I would, you know, being an older person, you know, I knew what the consequences of misjudgment would be, you know, putting the boat on the beach, getting somebody hurt. I had a much more, more uh, comprehensive understanding of the consequences of my failure to, you know, to, to react properly. And so, you know, so I operated that whole summer, but I was a whole, I was a lot more conservative than I was as a young man. As a young man, I was like, you know, I'm piloting the fighter jet, you know, you know, impressing the hell out of everybody. That was all gone. And, uh, you know, my main, my main thing that summer was training guys to take over after I left. 
Broussard, thank you for sharing that with us. You know, there's this saying, lifeguards for life, and you two are a true testament to that. Uh, moving on, Martino, what was the most common mistake that you saw boaters make that caused accidents? And do you feel this mistake is specific to just inland boaters or coastal boaters or all boaters? Well, I'll give my opinion and we'll see uh, what Bruiser thinks in terms of his experience with the ocean. Uh, I've been able to work in both environments. I have not been a boat operator in the ocean environment, but a couple of observations that I made throughout my career. Everybody who goes to the beach or the lakeside doesn't believe that they're going to have a bad day. They are there to be with their family, to have fun, to forget about the problems that the world has. And in my case, at the lake, drive their jet ski really, really fast or their boat fast and just forget about whatever it is that is bogging them down at home. So the number one thing that would cause accidents is people's belief that accidents would never happen to them. Because every single person that I had to be involved with in an accident or boating mishap or first aid in a situation, I could almost say every single one of them would say, I didn't think it would happen to me. So that's number one. And I don't want people coming to the beach or the lake being paranoid, but you do have to keep it in mind and take some safety precautions. So for boaters, the number one safety precaution to me have your life jackets. I had to do a double fatality boating accident. And the saddest part about my investigation is I found both of the dead twin brothers life jackets in the back of their pickup truck parked in the parking lot. They didn't take them with them. So for those boaters that are on any type of water, have your life jacket with you. I would highly recommend wearing it. And then the uh, last part that I'll put, this was for lakes, I would get a lot of boats in the springtime that were coming out and they had been put away in the winter and it was their first time out and the operators didn't take the time to do what I would call a boat safety check. You had it out four months prior. This is the first time that you're having it out for the spring going into summer boating season and they didn't do their basic boating safety checks. They forgot their drain plug. Uh, they forgot to put gas in it. And it seems so simple, but I think, again, it goes back to everybody being excited about going and recreating, and having fun with your family, that sometimes taking those extra few minutes or maybe half hour to make sure your equipment is in operating condition, that will cause the accident. And I'll, I'll tie it in with what Mike had said about the operator who had a anchor line that was too short. That's an equipment issue. That's something that you can solve before you get out on the water and give you and your family and those riding with you the best chance at being safe. Thank you, Martino. Great points. Broussard, do you have anything to add from your point of view? Yeah, you know, what, what I observed uh, mostly was people trying to do things that, that are beyond their skill level. And a lot of it just had to do with speed, especially on jet skis. Uh, jet ski guys, you know, a lot of them are rented or, you know, they're, they're the weekend warrior and, and, and no offense to people that are riding jet skis. Cause I, you know, I, I know they're fun. Um, but, uh, but, you know, you get out there and the jet skis now will go 50 or 60 miles an hour. And uh, you know, 
sometimes the skill level doesn't match with what they're trying to do. So I would say people need to assess their limitations and, and pay attention. Uh, I, I know it's intoxicating to be on a machine like that. Um, and, you know, I'll back Mike up 100% on the, on the uh, you got to have your equipment squared away. If you're going out to, if you're going to Catalina, for instance, you know, I know people do it without anything. I, if it's a clear day and all that, then you're in good shape. But you got to at least have a marine radio uh, that you can call in case you get in trouble. Um, having a, a depth finder. God, if you have a radar, you're styling, you know, and, and, and you got to have a GPS and that there's any um, any fog on the water. You're going through a major shipping lane. You got to have the equipment, the electronic equipment to deal with that. Thank you, Broussard. Now, Martino, what is your advice to any new boaters so they can have a safe boating experience the next time they go out? Well, I think it's important to do your research. And what I mean by that is find whether it's a, an operator or somebody else who owns a boat that you've always, if you've been riding with them, that you like how they operate their boat. It's a, it's a skill. And one of the things I learned in particular, being a professional boat operator in a rescue situation, well, there was a time where I absolutely knew nothing. And I would look to my mentors and coworkers that were able to train me. And that slow as pro that I mentioned before is something that saved my life and my boat so many times. I can't even give you what that number is. You don't have to go out there and go speedy fast and show how great you are with all your maneuvers. It's learn what your limitations are and wherever they are in your journey of being a boat operator. And I know uh, this, this came along after I retired, but I love the concept of it is that California boater card. And that particular card is a self-study that is, is put out where you, the boat operator can get some very basic knowledge to, to start your journey and learning how to operate your boat. And then you get a little card, very similar to a license that you get for your car, but that would just be the first step. And then from there, you just keep developing your skills and finding people who operate boats that you admire their skill set and just learn from them. Be a sponge, keep your mind open. Never think that you are the world's best boat operator because you're not. And you should just continue on in that learning and boating journey because it's such a great recreation and a great way to spend your time and be out there with your family and have a lot of fun. But like anything, Mike and I see when things go bad. I would love for boat operators to put Mike and I and people who do our jobs out of business in the sense of we don't have to go make rescues because everybody's doing what they should be while they're operating their boats. Both Bruiser and I know that will never happen, but how about we get that number of people that we got to go pull out of trouble really, really small. That's a great point. Uh, Bruiser, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. My advice to, to boat operators, like I, like I said, would be to stay, you know, to stay between the lines, recognize what your limitations are. And when you're operating a boat, just be really deliberate about everything. Uh, like when I first started operating the rescue boat, I wanted to go fast. I wanted, 
And the guy who trained me, Gary Harvey, he's like, what are you doing? What's the big hurry here? You're going to get there. Just, just slow down. So being deliberate, I, I recently went on a, a, a short boat ride with a friend of mine who has a, a, an acquaintance of mine who has a, you know, it's like a 40 foot twin engine power boat. And I, and I was like, this should be interesting. And it was the same setup that we had with the, with the transmissions and, and engines, the throttles. And he was incredibly deliberate. I mean, he backed out of the slip and, you know, he, he did nothing fancy. And I mean, he was, a, he was a very cautious, good boat operator. And I, I said that to him when I left. I said, I, I said you're a really good boat operator, man. Um, you know, another thing uh, is that, especially if you're, if you're operating a boat in a high traffic area, um, it's really critical. And, you know, and I know this because I, you know, I, I screwed this one up myself, but before, if you're sitting there and you said, all right, we're gonna move over to this place. Before you put the throttles up, look around you and see if anything's coming. I mean, there were a few times when we'd be sitting outside the harbor and we got a rescue call. And, and so I, you know, we, we'd put it in gear and I'd put the throttles up and turn to the, the port side and here comes a jet ski, you know. And so it's really important to be looking around uh, all the time to make sure if you're, you know, if you're sitting, if you're sitting in one spot and then you're going to put the throttles up and start moving. Before you do that, look around. That's important. That's some great advice. Mike Martino and Mike Bussard, thank you so much for your time. And thank you to everyone out there who joined us. Don't forget to tune in to our future episodes of Dockside. This podcast was brought to you by California State Parks, the California Coastal Commission, and the San Francisco Estuary Partnership. It is partially funded by the Division of Boating and Waterways Clean Vessel Act Education Program and the Federal Clean Vessel Grant Act Program.